Welcome to Meet the Filmmaker at the Apple Store Regent Street in London. Would you please welcome our guest moderator, Michael Hahn. Thank you very much. And this afternoon, we're delighted to be joined for Meet the Filmmaker by Brett Morgan, uh, the director of Cobain, Montage of Heck, an incredibly revealing film about Kurt Cobain, the great frontman of Nirvana. And we'll open proceedings with the trailer for this film. with having your whole family reject you. Kurt became really unruly. He hated being humiliated. You could see the rage come out. You'd always have to do some kind of art. You go out for a few hours, you come back, and there was a painting on the wall where he wrote a song. His goal was to write as well as he could, play as well as he could. That's all in the music, man. It was awe-inspiring, but it was like, oh, you know, I guess I'm not all that special. This is what I've always wanted to be. And I said, you better buckle up, because you are not ready for this. normalcy. He wanted the mom, the dad, and the kids and everything happy. But then he didn't. If anything's going to stop me from pursuing this rock and roll thing, it's going to be her. He wanted to build a home because his home and his family fell apart. We were all we had. Ah, I felt kind of happy. He was searching for whatever made him feel like he wasn't alone. Do you find that you're getting happier in general? Yeah, definitely. I'm really thankful for a lot of things. Are you getting all this? Yes. Oh, aren't we lucky? I'm Kurt Cobain. This is the look of Aberdeen. Come on, look at the camera. And now we're going to be joined by the director of the film, Brett Morgan. Hello, Brett. Hello. Well, let's start with the questions that you've been asked 300 times before and will answer 300 times again, doubtless, before the film actually comes out. What was the genesis of this film? Uh, genesis goes back to 2007, and I received a call from Courtney Love, who uh, was interested in me doing a film about Kurt. And at the first meeting, she said, you know, that, that everyone knows Kurt as a musician, but that he had uh, created all this art, and that there would be that it might serve as the basis for a movie. So um, I was a casual fan at the time, and um, uh, but the idea of of this other side of Kurt was quite enticing um, because as a, as a documentary filmmaker, I'm always looking for you know it, it, the way I choose my subjects has a lot to do with what. I have access to in terms of material. 
And with Kurt Cobain, I discovered an artist, not just a musician and not a rock star, but an artist with a capital A, who had essentially created an autobiography of his life, a visual and oral autobiography of his life. If you believe that all artists are sort of telling their life story through their work, here we have a, in a situation where, where Kurt worked in paint, you know, he painted, he sculpted, he made Super 8 films, cartoon strips, sound collages, music, spoken word, and it, it was about as complete a self-portrait as, as one could stumble onto. Now the incredible thing is that in 20 years since his death, no one had actually looked at the archive of material left behind, had they? And you were the first person to go through this. Well, I don't know if I was the first. I think Charlie Cross had access to some of the materials for a book called yeah, Cobain his, Unseen, yeah. and also for Charlie's book. But uh, I'm, I, Charlie came over to my office and I played him a bunch of the audio, which he had not, never, never heard. So, yeah, it was a bit, it was a bit strange. Um, I mean, some of the audio that we unearthed, it would, that was really the, that was what was shocking to me. I mean, a lot of the, the art had somehow gone out through various, you know, bootlegs, but hearing Kurt do the Beatles and I loved her for the first time, and as far as I know, nobody had ever even heard that, or Kurt's audio autobiography, which is kind of, for me, the, the most revealing find of the film. Um, that stuff was, was revelatory. Now, one of the things that needs to be explained to people who won't have seen the film is that it's almost a kind of mixed media film, isn't it? You use animation from his journals, there's proper and Disney-style animation to illustrate his audio autobiography. There's talking heads too, but it's not really a talking heads kind of documentary in the way that we kind of expect from rock stars. And Montage of Heck was, of course, the title of Cobain's mixtape, and it kind of seemed to me as if you were using that almost as the Rosetta Stone to enter into Cobain's life. The film is a visual version of the tape itself. To a certain extent. I mean, I felt when I... When I the tape you're referring to, for those who don't know, is an uh, infamous mixtape Kurt did in the late 80s. And um, I wasn't aware of its existence, and as I was going through these various tapes, while I was in the storage facility, surrounded by all of his art and his clothes and all of his possessions, I put in this one tape called Montage of Heck. And it's an audio collage of everything from the Beatles and Simon and Garfunkel to horror, cheesy horror films and sci-fi films, and it's just snippets. But in a sense, I felt listening to it that it brought me closer to Kurt than any of the music I'd heard. That in a way, it felt like a portal into his mind because his humor was fully on display, as well as his sentimentality. And those were two things that were not necessarily the first two things one thinks of with Kurt. So I felt in many ways it was the most pure expression of him and was sort of like a blueprint for how to make the film. But the, the, the idea with the interviews is, I'm, I'm, with all my work, I try to create these immersive experiences. And to me, a talking head is almost the antithesis of an immersive experience. It's fine if you're writing a book or you're doing an article and you're just dealing with the, spoke, the written word. But on screen, it's to me oftentimes just dead space. So I try to structure and design my films so that they're not so much about the subject, but they become the, the experience of that subject. Um, with Kurt, 
I found that of all the mediums he um, worked in, the one area that he really faltered in were doing interviews. That he would either be self-conscious, too earnest, too sarcastic, too withdrawn, self-mythologizing, a, a whole host of things. It just was not something that he was incredibly comfortable with. Um, so at that point I changed gears and because the original conception was that he would sort of tell, it would just be all Kurt. And then I realized that I needed to step outside of that in certain moments to help contextualize the art that we were going to experience. And so I invited the five people who were most intimate with Kurt during his lifetime to participate. His mother, his daughter, I'm sorry, his mother, his father, his sister, his first girl from first love, his best friend, and his wife. The mother, father, and sister had never been interviewed on camera before. So um, that was a tremendous opportunity because most of us don't remember anything that happened to us the first five years of our lives. So the only people who bore witness to that were Don Cobain and, and Wendy Cobain. And I think a lot of the issues that Kurt traveled with in his journey through life were already seeded in those first early years. So it was, I think, critical to get their input, as well as the, um, as, and I guess we'll set this up maybe, uh, the, the home movies. Um, for someone as iconic as Kurt and as written about as Kurt, it's amazing that nobody had ever seen these Super, hate, super 8 home movies that essentially reveal his upbringing before your eyes. I mean, there was about six hours of pristine Super 8 film with, with almost, I don't, very little, if any, scratches. I mean, it was like pristine. And it wasn't just posing. You can literally see his relationship to his parents and his family evolve before your eyes. Let's have a look at a clip of Kurt Cobain as a toddler from Montage of Heck. He was the first grandchild on both sides. Everybody was coming over constantly. Can't even describe what a magnet he was. People just came to him. One of the things that's interesting about some of the, the, the conversation and the footage of his early years is, is his mother saying that Aberdeen was this wonderful place to bring up a family. It was just great and people had jobs. Everyone was friendly. It was a neighborhood kind of place. And yet the mythology we have is that Aberdeen was the most wretched place in the world and everyone was on heroin. Everyone couldn't wait to get out. God, no wonder Kurt Cobain turned out the way he did. Did, did you go to Aberdeen at all to, to try and investigate any of the, the truth about the town? I, I did, and I actually found it to be, you know, kind of 
beautiful in, in, in its own way. I mean, I didn't grow up there, but one thing that I found really surprising is the view outside of Kurt's window from where he grew up. You know, there were like trees in the forest, you know, within maybe 200 yards. It was actually a beautiful sort of view to look out onto. Um, but it's the Northwest, and like London or like the UK, it rains a lot and is usually gray. And I think, the, I think someone once told me, and I'm not sure if this is true, Seattle had the highest murder uh, suicide rate in America. Um, I think in part because of the the weather. So I would imagine. I think what Kurt would often complain about was the sort of mindset of Aberdeen, which was, I think, not as cosmopolitan or worldly as, um, as Kurt would have liked. Can we say one more thing about Aberdeen? Please do. As much as Kurt knocked Aberdeen, he was very much a child of Aberdeen. And you cannot separate Kurt from Aberdeen. He is, and, and, and I will say this, the, when I hear Kurt criticize Aberdeen, I feel that he's criticizing himself, that there's a part of him that he didn't like that was very much rooted in Aberdeen. And I think it's an important, it's not something I go into in length in the movie, but I think it's an important thing to note in terms of understanding Kurt, that he was not that far removed from the hick, the redneck, that he, um, you know, the Mr. Mustache character that he despised. Um, but that's, I think, maybe true of a lot of our prejudices that a lot of times we're prejudiced against the very thing because it's something we don't like in ourselves. Now, one of the most interesting interviewees, although she has very little role in the film, I think is Kurt's stepmother, Donald Cobain's second wife, who is the only one of those interviews from his childhood years who seems to accept responsibility for the sadness that was inflicted upon him. I mean, Kurt's mother doesn't really in the same way, despite the fact that you know, she threw him out of the house his dad remains really quite distant from the conversation, and yet it does seem to strike home with her, and that was quite apparent. I think we want to have an honest discussion about it. The thing with Wendy is, in her mind, she never abandoned Kurt. That her door was always open to him. But that's not how Kurt experienced it. So I think there's a disconnect to this day in terms of that whole chapter of his life. I think with Jenny, I was shocked at some of the things Jenny said, and there's a lot more of it that will be in the companion book that um, should be out, I think, in the next few weeks out here. Um, I think she might have been a little liberated, maybe a little more liberated than Kurt's mom, perhaps, in the sense that I don't think she necessarily is burdened by being Kurt's stepmom, the way that Wendy might feel as being Kurt's mom and feeling that people are holding her in part responsible. Jenny was a revelation. Don Cobain to me was a in, incredible revelation because Don had been defined to me through Kurt and then it through Wendy prior to interviewing Don. And I was expecting the boogeyman. And what I found was someone who was racked by pain, just haunted. And there were four or five times he just burst into tears in the middle of the interview. Um, 
they totally caught me off guard. When, when I, and then when I started the interview with Don, he, he spoke for about 15 minutes before I got a question in. It was like he had to get it out, out, out of him. I don't think he had, and he'd be the first to say this, I don't think he had the right, I don't think anyone necessarily knew how to nurture Kurt, which isn't necessarily their fault. It's like, it was a lot of things happening at that time in that place, but there was clearly a disconnect. Well, when, um, when your son is the poster boy for adolescent discontent ending in a tragic death and you're a policeman pilloried as well as the person who ah you know it's what you did to him in his adolescence that drove him to all this it's not a great position to be in for, for someone because just as parents don't understand their children children really don't understand their parents either do they no and i think that the 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 a lot of us go through life i mean i'm 46 and i'm every year get closer to resolving issues I had with my parents. And at 27, those things were, you know, inflamed at 25. And um, I, I think Kurt had a lot of, I had good reason to be bitter. You know, I, the, the reality is whether it was for a week or a month or, or six months or two years, that young boy at a pivotal age in his adolescence, was not, not allowed to stay at his father's house and was not allowed to stay at his mother's house. And while they might not have felt that they were, that they had ever, their love had ever changed, as I said earlier, the way a young child experiences that is, is you know, it's, it's quite traumatic. Now this leads into one of the key sequences in the film, doesn't it? an animated sequence which we, we don't have here but kind of needs to be described it's it's Kurt on tape it's an audio autobiography in which he talks in a way that reflects no credit on him whatever it's kind of quite important to say that about his attempt to lose his virginity and the treatment of him and his friends which is quite appalling of a girl in their school and then what happened to Kurt afterwards, him getting ridiculed. Now, you've described that as the rosebud moment of the film. Why was that? Well, the tape that, that, that we're discussing is a, it's not, it's not from an interview. It's an audio autobiography that Kurt created that he recorded in 1988, put in a box, and there it sat until 2013 when I discovered it. And in this story, he talks about being passed around from home to home and then as you said goes into this detail about losing his virginity to a girl who was mentally challenged as Kurt describes it and when word got out that he had slept with this girl as these are Kurt's words everyone all the kids at school had gathered around to call him the retard fucker and he couldn't handle the humiliation so he went down the train tracks to kill himself Knowing what happened to Kurt later in life, one cannot help but put a giant light on that because here we have Kurt Cobain in his own words talking about taking his own life and giving you the reason, the rationale at that moment in time, which is he couldn't handle the ridicule. 
that was also, that sentiment was something that reverberated through Kurt's own writings, both in his journals and his lyrics. Floyd the Barber, I was shamed, I was shamed, I was shamed. Um, you see in the movie when Chris Novoselic talks about how Kurt dealt with humiliation. Chris looked like he saw a ghost. And when you see the film, if, if, if people go, you know, see the film, they'll see that the, the end of the movie, I, I propose that Kurt, the, the, Kurt, the popular sentiment that Kurt took his life because he didn't want to be famous anymore, to me is, is, is fraught with, with all sorts of problems. Main which is Kurt never had a problem quitting anything. He quit everything. That was not an issue. He had no issue in his life up to that point of he could have quit, left Nirvana. That wouldn't have been a thing. It would have been actually in keeping with his behavior. Ridicule was something that Kurt could never handle. And the film goes back to its very roots from when he was two. So, so knowing that, it was almost as if he was giving us insight into his final hours. But the curious thing, isn't it? Like, for the last four or five years of his life, there wasn't a lot of ridicule. There was an awful lot of... Oh, no, Kurt. there was a tremendous amount of ridicule. Well, there was an awful lot of Kurt, you're oh. a genius as well. Uh, well, there was, but you, you, listen, man, if you're sensitive like that, the whole world can tell you you're a genius, and one person speaks ill of you, and that's all you think about. And with Kurt, the, the, the ill was he was being depicted as a meek heroin addict. And I think that crushed him. I think the way that he was being depicted, particularly in the Vanity Fair article, it didn't matter if he sold 300 million albums that week. Nothing was going to overshadow the, the, the Vanity Fair article or that type of press. I, and, and by the way, and I relate to that, you know, I could get 150 great reviews tomorrow, but I'm going to remember the one bad one. But at the same time, you know, we see him in the film talking about his kind of contempt for music journalists, for, for writers in general, for, for people who are trying to analyze what he's all about. Was not perhaps an, an element that he just didn't want people having opinions about him full stop? This was a tragedy, man. He wanted it and then he didn't. If nobody wanted to interview him, he would have been calling up his manager saying, why does anyone want to interview me? But see, the thing with Kurt that, that people have a hard time reconciling, and I understand why, because it's contradictory, is Kurt's ambition. Kurt, from all accounts, wanted to be successful. He wanted to be the biggest rock star in the world. Well, you don't but he didn't know what that was. <laughs> you don't sign to Geffen by mistake, do you? You but don't get this no, incredibly and, and polished record by also, mistake. Also, I could say, yeah. I want to win an Academy Award, but I don't know what that's like, you know, how that would change, right? So he says he wants to, he wants to be the biggest rock star in the world. Well, that sounds great when you're not the biggest rock star in the world. And if you're not feeling good about yourself and you have a low self-image, and suddenly the whole world is showering you with praise, it doesn't prop you up, man. It does the opposite. 
because you suddenly feel like they're all full of shit because you feel like a fucking phony. And so, yes, he wanted it, but he didn't know what it was. It, in Kurt's mind, was being Sonic Youth or, or, or maybe Jane's addiction on, in terms of the level of celebrity. And as you know, from that time, those bands were maybe got close to gold, um, but they could walk down the street and nobody was calling them the voice of a generation. So I, I think that Kurt is a classic case of like, you know, when you take a band like One Direction or, or a pop band today, when they say they want to make it, they know what they're talking about in the sense of, yeah, they want everybody looking at them and they're dressing for the part. You know, th there was the other thing about Kurt that was a grave misconception when he emerged on the scene. I remember I showed, um, I showed the movie to a, a friend of mine and she said, you know, when I, when Kurt came out, I just thought he was this whiny white guy. You know, every time we'd see him on television, he just seemed like this whiny, complainy white guy. But within the context of the movie, you realize that he's not a whiny, complainy white guy. He's a fucking artist. And when he got to the point where someone said, you have to do an interview at three o'clock, you and I can look at that and go, come on, man. That's all you got to do all day is get up. Well, suddenly he had to do something that he didn't ask to do that day. And it became a job. And I view him now through that lens that this is a guy who doesn't, he's defiant and doesn't want to be told what to do. So to have some A&R guy from Geffen say, you have to go talk to Michael at the, you know, at three o'clock and then go to the Apple store at five and they're selling 600,000 albums a week. Who, who needs it? You know, and, and I don't think he understood, you know, so I think that he just was like, he, at that point, he wasn't playing the game. It's a, I, I'm interested you bring up One Direction there, because the Zayn Malik departure the other week, which... Huge mistake. Yeah, well, which had everyone going, oh, poor little rich boy, you know, it's, oh, look at him complaining about the life. And, but that, it is an awful life, and it's the same life Kurt Cobain had, except without the compensation of being able to speak your mind because you're an artist, which he did have. And Zayn Malik doesn't. He has to do the 23 hours a day of meet and greets and interviews without any any of the emotional nourishment that comes from creating your own art. Um, with the volume of material that you had, how hard was it to separate the stuff that was gonna help you tell the story rather than just indulge the temptation to throw everything at the screen because you had this stuff no one had ever seen before? Even though um, some people may find this hard to believe after seeing two hours and 12 minutes of a movie, I have ADD, man. I have limited attention span and I believe in an economy if it's not you know if it's not doing double duty it doesn't belong in the film and if it's there just because it's funny it has no business you know you make a film and you got to be able to justify it's you know I think of it these films is how they're like a, it's like a house of cards in my mind if I pull one card out the whole thing falls apart and I keep pulling the cards out until I've got to the, to the basement. Now you can look at this film now and go two hours and 12 minutes. Surely, Brett, there was something you could have cut out. And I could say, dude, you wanna to come to the edit room with me? Because I will explain to you why if I pull that out, it will have a trigger effect 45 minutes later. So um, it's not, yeah, there's a, all this great material, but I didn't have a seven hour assembly edit. I had a two and a half hour assembly edit and I delivered a two hour and 12 minute cut.
Now, this year also sees documentaries about Elliot Smith and Amy Winehouse, and I wish to say by chance rather than by kind of grisly conspiracy. Do you think there's something a little grisly about our obsession with artists who die young? Uh, it depends on the artist and it depends if there's a story to tell. You know, I, I, I went to college with Elliot, so I'll, I'll, I'll plead the fifth on that one. And I, I feel like Kurt's life m m made for, an, you know, there's an incredible story, journey that he went through that is, I'm, I'm not, I, I, I don't want to get too grandiose, but it's, it's classic, you know, um, in terms of its narrative order, the way Bob Evans' life was, you know. And, um, you know, just because someone is a good artist doesn't mean they're a good subject for a movie. And I think that's the mistake that we make culturally is that, and I get hit on all the time by these people who want me to make films on them. And they're amazing individuals. And it's like, hey man, that, you did amazing work, but that doesn't mean there's an amazing movie to be made. There may be an amazing book, but that doesn't mean there's an amazing movie to be made. Now, in the notebooks, another thing that's great, as well as the art that you, you highlight, is the fact he's doing the things that all teenage kids who love music do. He's scribbling through, trying to find the perfect band name. And I think we've got a clip here of Kurt settling upon the final band name. just say this is a really good sound system because I could hear my effects and if since this is on the iTunes store if someone's gonna watch download the movie if they're not watching it through proper speakers and they're gonna listen to it through their computer speakers put on headphones sorry I just have to say it'll be much more enriching experience if you have headphones on you could hear everything I mean some of that stuff is where you feel that you're getting to know Kurt most because it's the stuff that's free of the angst it's free of the, of the myth of Kurt Cobain it is this, this kid trying to work out who he is and having fun doing it. Because it, it is fun, this stuff. Yeah, I mean, look, you know, I, I, in many ways, the, the, what, the last time I saw that movie, Boyhood, and I was oddly struck, and I was in, you know, close to finishing this film, and I, I, I walked out of there and I was like, man, that's about as close as a, a reference point to Montage of Heck as I can get. And it doesn't seem obvious, but in a way, you sort of go through life with Kurt. You're almost in the passenger seat, and he's driving. And you watch him go from that cute little toddler to through all these evolutions. And um, he's just a boy, man. It's just, you know, it's a boy becomes a young adult, and he's Kurt. And he's like, he's, you know, it's, it, it, it's not... 
that intimacy, all of that stuff really helps, I think, humanize him. And as, as we were talking about backstage, you know, one of the ideas with this film was Kurt's been so deified. Uh, and, you know, the kid stays in the picture, if you've seen it, it was meant as a monument, you know. If you spend your whole life working in images in Hollywood, then the greatest monument is not in bronze, it's a movie, you know. And the, the idea with the kids' season picture was uh, from the John Ford film, Man Who Shot Liberty Bounds. When the legend becomes fact, print the legend. Um, oh, fuck. I don't know how I went on that tangent, but I know that this Kurt, film's the opposite. Kurt, oh, Kurt yeah. has always been deified. Yeah, because, because we didn't need to deify Kurt, you know, and we didn't need to vilify Kurt. The idea was to look Kurt in the eye, you know, and, and, and to see him as just as, as a man with all the strengths and flaws and that we all have, and, and, and hopefully that that form of engagement becomes more appealing than the, than the myth. And I think in Kurt's case it is, that's my takeaway, is that the man is much more appealing than the myth. Much more, vastly more appealing than the myth. I wish we had some of these clips here where you were, you get some of Kurt's humor in that journal thing, but I mean, he's funny. Well, some, some of the clips, especially with him, with Courtney, um, later on, uh, very appealing. There's warmth, there's humour in there. Although one thing's interesting there is um, not just from the film, but also, I mean, I don't know if you've read, um, I can't remember what the book's called now, but it's the oral history of the Seattle grunge scene. Um, Everybody Loves Our Town by Mark Yarm, not Mark Arm. Um, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. And you read that, and also you see this, you think, these people were just unequipped for adulthood. And watching Kurt and Courtney, with Kurt, it's not so much, it's not just the sense he's trying to give his daughter the love that he felt he never had. It's almost like he's trying to have the child, he's trying to have his childhood of over course. again. Yeah, mm. no, he's read that, that's his whole life. Mm. That was the goal, is to, to reclaim those first three years. To, 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 to you know, it's a, the movie is a, really a family origin story. And, the tragedy, I think, of Kurt's life and what happened to him at the end is that when that family became defiled in his mind, that was even more of a trauma than stuff that happened to him as a child. I mean, that was, you know, his shattered everything he had at that point. So. I, I, yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's tough, man, because in, in some respects, and Kim, Kim Cobain got mad at me because I referred to Kurt as a man-child in an interview. And I was like, ah, you know, I mean, on a certain level, Kurt was far more mature than I was at 25. I mean, the, the last thing I was thinking of at that age was, I'm gonna get married this month and have a kid. On another level, anyone who's been, who's used drugs, on a consistent level, and, and by that I mean anything from marijuana and alcohol up, on a consistent level, you know, you, you, you ha it stunts your emotional growth. And so in a way, you are a man-child, you know? And, um, and so on some level, he's far more mature than, than the average 25-year-old. On another level, he's still a kid. And, um, you know, part of the, the tragic nature of this whole endeavor was seeing what a good father, what, a, when, what a, a good father for a heroin addict he was. 
I know that sounds strange, but it's, we have to qualify it as such. And, and, and you, know, I, you know, for Francis, you know, you could see that he would have been the, if he could have got it together, would have been an amazing father. I mean, the focus and the love he had for his child is not something that comes natural to all men. There's the one heartbreaking scene, isn't there, when Francis is having her first haircut, and that's the, that's the only bit in the film where you think, oh, uh, that's an unpleasant watching. I don't want to see it either, mm -hmm. you know? And that's, that's the thing is, I, I spoke to Kurt Smiley. We refer to a scene in the film where Kurt is heavily doped, and him and Courtney are attempting to give Francis her first haircut. And it's true, Courtney is saying, Kurt, what's wrong with you? I'm just tired. I'm not on drugs. Yeah. I'm just tired. And it is frightening as hell to watch. And it's terrible. It's absolutely dreadful. And it was one of those things, man, where um, I can't say I struggled that mightily with it. Because I feel like without that scene, the film would have started to tip towards romanticism. And I feel that that scene helps, puts a face to what, what is a terrible frickin' disease. And, you know, for 20 years, everyone has associated Kurt with heroin, but we never saw the ugly side of it, per se. So in a way, it's romanticized. Is there anybody who doesn't do heroin because Kurt did heroin? No. But just as I was influenced by the movie Christiana F when I was a kid, I'm fairly confident, in fact, I've, I've already had this happen with some people who've seen the film, that there are gonna be people who see this film and are not going to go there because of the face of heroin that they see in this. And I didn't set out to make an anti-drug film, um, but it's, it's, you know, it, it felt that that's one of those scenes, man. And I, I had to sit there with Kurt's mother, man, who wanted to frickin' tear me to pieces because of that scene. And Chris Novoselic sat me down after the premiere, man, and he, he talked to me for two hours and wanted to come down to L.A. and sit in the edit room with me. And, and I, I, I was like, Chris, man, I, I totally get where you're going with that. And if... If I were Kurt's best friend in your situation, I would most likely do the same. But I feel that we would be doing a disservice and we would be continuing this myth that needs to be shattered. Is it, was it difficult to get the balance? The balance seems right to me. It's not, there isn't prurience. It is just the one scene. It's not prurient. It's not preachy either. It's not glamorous. It must have been quite a fine balancing act to get the right tone with that aspect of his life. I will say this, that the, um, the first editor on the film put together an assembly edit that was very sterile. I, you know, I was like, what, are you, what is this, man? Yeah. I, I, don't, I, don't, I don't think we... Not to the extent that we didn't struggle with it the way that you think. I mean, I was very conscious of the balancing act. And, the, you know, there was, the, it came more into play with the journals that, oh God, we cannot have another scene where Kurt is going crazy in his journals. Like, it's getting repetitious. And I was very concerned about that stuff. 
you know, how many times can you hear? Yeah. You know. So that was what I was I was mainly concerned about. But um, and also, you know, we started with the idea that we wanted to front load as much of Kurt's humor as possible because it was one thing that Wendy and Kim and Courtney and any any and anyone who knew Kurt would say to me is make sure you get the humor. But there's not a lot out there, so we really had to. That was something I was really conscious of was making sure that we captured that side of his personality. The dark stuff, that's just a question of scaling it down. Do you think that um, the rejection he had as a child is what accounted for his, his own slightly odd way of dispensing with people he felt had served their purpose in his life? I mean, Tracy Miranda was just, seemed there was just something no longer his girlfriend. Chad Channing, Nirvana's first drummer, only discovered he was, was no longer Nirvana's drummer when he turned up to practice and there was another drummer there. Um, he wasn't someone who's very good at actually confronting well, that, people. That has to do with empathy. Mm. And I don't like to talk about Kurt's suicide letter, but he, if I'm not mistaken, uses the word empathy a lot in that letter and in some of his latter journals. And I find it slightly ironic there's different forms of empathy. You see a baby that's hungry and you feel for that baby. Is that empathy? Because I don't know anyone who wouldn't feel that way about a baby, right? So Kurt was empathetic towards children and animals. But part of the problem with drugs and addiction is it makes it nearly impossible to fully empathize with another human being. The way from a, from a heart to heart, soul to soul way. So I think that it was easy for Kurt to walk away from people because I don't think he was able to empathize and put himself in their shoes the same way that I think it's difficult for any lifelong addict. I think, you know, Keith Richards is one of the most beautiful men I've ever met. But my guess is he probably, when he wrote some of the stuff he wrote about Mick, was not being very empathetic. And so I think that's just, you know, that, that, that's, there's people who are addicts and there are people who aren't. And there are people who can do drugs and not become addicts, right? And I think part of the addict's psyche is an, a, a very, difficult, if not inability, to empathize on a deep human level. Does uh, that answer? Is, uh, I think so. Uh, now, what kind of material is there for the soundtrack companion? There's 75 minutes of fantastic music of Kurt. Not, you know, it's not the band. It's Kurt sitting in his house writing music, and it's freaking awesome and I uh, hope that we could get it out there shortly. Um, is there anything as fantastic as the Beatles cover that, he, uh, that I we think hear so. in the for, film? Yeah, I think so for sure. I think so for sure. And, um, but you know, it's, it's funny, like when, when we announced this film with a press release, we said, uh, during the course of uh, the, the film Morgan Unearthed 200 hours of audio and the movie will feature unreleased songs. And I started checking social media and like clearly there's no smells like teen spirit, like fully recorded mixed songs left. Those don't exist. So we can 
That's not going to happen. But there are Kurt Cobain songs that if they were completed, I think would have been amongst his biggest hits. And musically suggest an evolution that, you know, I think uh, is, is, to me, as exciting as the movie itself in a way. Yeah. Now we've got time for a couple of questions from the audience if anyone wishes to ask any. Gentleman at the back. Further to what you just said, where do you think um, musically and in terms of sort of the band and where maybe Dave and Chris would have sort of fitted in into the picture? Because you said Kurt wouldn't have had a problem leaving Nirvana. Um, what do you think if, you know, say he had set aside his demons, his drug addiction, etc., and and sort of just maybe lived a normal life as a normal father, where do you think sort of in the, the pantheon of um, rock gods? If that legends, was it, they did the three albums and he walked away? Yeah, or where do you think he'd be now? What do you well, think he'd... Well, Courtney said, so I asked Courtney that question and I loved her response, so I'm just going to steal it. He'd be Tom Petty. I just, for some reason, when she said that to me, and she was like, yeah, he'd be Tom Petty, he'd be living in Encino in a big house, doing what he wants to do on his terms, you know, with some probably other wife who was aging gracefully. And I kind of like that idea. I don't know why. Because there's, some, there's a purity to Tom Petty, I feel. Like, you know what I mean? But, um, you know, we'll, ne we'll never know, but... Sorry, just, and just one further thing then on that. Do you think um, that maybe Dave would have ever sort of felt, I don't, I'm fed up of, you know, obviously you've had conversations with Dave, um, would maybe say, well, you know, actually, I've not kind of fed up being in his shadow because I know from a couple of books I've read about him that he really loved him. Yeah, well, it was um, clear, it's clear. He would have, sorry, he would have sort of said, actually, you know what, I kind of want to go and do something. And I think it's really interesting concept to theorize because it's clear that Dave is, you know, had songs in him, you know, as if, I don't want to use the genius word, but, you know, is a, one of the most formidable songwriters of the, in rock and roll of the last 25 years. So clearly he wasn't going to be, those songs needed to come out. And the question is, would Kurt have allowed it to come out within the context of Nirvana? I don't, my two cents, this is just my guess, is no. But that it was Kurt's band. But I, I don't know. I mean, that's just me guessing. Okay, thank you. No. Anyone else like to ask anything? Because I love Marigold, you know, which, which was on uh, with, with the lights out. It's, it's, it's one of Dave's, like, I think the only Dave track released during the Nirvana time. It's, it's absolutely great. But Kurt might have enjoyed being the drummer for a bit. Actually, that would have been interesting because they could have become this, like, super group where they switched instruments and Kurt could have been the drummer, which he probably, you know, Kurt's fantasy was to be Ringo Starr. He wanted to be the drummer for the Beatles. He didn't want to be the lead man. And I think that speaks volumes. So actually, let me reconsider your question. Perhaps Kurt would have been very comfortable slipping into the back, pitting the skins, letting Dave take lead, 
and then doing some side projects. Gentleman there. Hi there. Hi. So Mike Orkney. Okay. Um, sorry. I, so I walked in. I'm, maybe I missed this question, but I'm just interested. There's sort of famously not the best relationship between the surviving members of Nirvana and Courtney Love. So were there different agendas? Did you have, how difficult was it pleasing them all? Well, it was easy for me because I had Final Cut. So I didn't have to deal with any agenda. I mean, I had to deal with, you know, yeah, I didn't have any agenda uh, to deal with. I mean, I was just going to be funny and say I had to make sure I was home at 5 o'clock for my children. But there was no, there was no agenda. I mean, the agenda was to make the movie that I made, you know. And, and so, um, you know, the only time Chris and I, Chris and I, I think, had two editorial conversations. One was when I went to interview him. I explained to him the type of movie I was hoping to make. And the second was after the premiere of the film. Um, and Courtney didn't see the film until it was completely finished two days before Sundance premiere. So nobody had an opportunity to editorialize. And I wasn't interested. I mean, I, I felt that there is a purity to the fact that I got to know Kurt through primary sources. It wasn't through hearsay. It wasn't because I was a casual acquaintance or I was part of the Seattle scene. My image of Kurt, which I've now passed along to you guys, was solely defined by primary source material that was presented to me. And just because there's a lot of conspiracy people out there, when I say presented to me, I don't mean that Courtney and Francis and some other nefarious source editorialized out anything that I shouldn't, they didn't want me to see. I was given raw, frickin' raw materials and had to and bear the weight, the responsibility and the burden of, you know, redefining the, the, the image. I'm gonna give you one last question before we wrap up. Now, before we came out here, I was telling you about the first review I ever had published. The first piece of writing I ever had published was a review of a gig at the Duchess of York in Leeds in autumn 1989 in the student newspaper, in which I hailed the headliners as a group we'd be hearing an awful lot more of, um, who were who magnificent were. in every respect. But I said, don't worry about the support band, they're going nowhere, they've got no tunes. The headliners? But the headliners were Tad, the support was Nirvana. Do you think Nirvana would have got anywhere if Kurt Cobain had looked like Tad? No, we wouldn't be sitting here right now. No, that's, I mean, that's part of the whole package, man. Kurt, I, I, you know, y'all have lots of choices to see movies this weekend, right? Or if you're watching this at home in a week to download stuff. Name me one movie star that you could go see on the screen in London this weekend that's more appealing to look at than Kurt Cobain, because I don't know who it is, you know? I mean, he is... He's gorgeous, and that's part of it. And, and as Courtney says, I think part of the appeal is he didn't realize how gorgeous he was. And that's freaking true. I mean, you can see that everywhere. And the other thing that's really mind-blowing about Kurt, and you only get this when you go through Kurt's, all of his media in order, I don't think, and this is just my impression, that he was that beautiful 
when Bleach came out. And I don't think he was that gorgeous when he was a senior in high school. I think he's okay, good looking, but not like you wouldn't go. Somewhere between Bleach and Nevermind, his fucking face changed, man. His chin, that cleft chin was not there earlier in his life. He had a doughier face. He was a little bit pudgy, even though he's a skinny guy. It was a softer features. His chin started to come out. His features became more pronounced. He physically, as you and I have got better looking as we aged, he hit his peak at, well, who knows where he would have evolved, but that Kurt that was introduced to the world through teen spirit was, you know, visually Adonis. I, I'm, how, I'm for, for me, the best looking rock star, you know, that, but it's personal preference. You probably, maybe Tad's your favorite. I don't know, but I mean. I like the larger man. I, you know, the idea, but it is, it's, 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 listen, they, why did they break out that video? You know, Tad would not have sold that video. Jay Maskis doesn't have the same visual charisma that Kurt does. He's a shredder on the guitar, and as far as I'm concerned, an equal is with his songwriting and a, a superior guitar player, but didn't have the looks. And, and, and it's funny that we even say that because Kurt was punk. It wasn't like a boy band and, and Simon, you know, cast him because he would be the pretty one in the band. You know, so I, it's, it's a very valid question, but it's all part of the mystique, you know? I mean, would David Bowie be David Bowie if he looked like Tad? <laughs> And that, that's funnier to think about, actually. Tad going through those various <laughs> changes in his career. Cobain Montage of Heck is released in the UK on April 10th. Thank you very much, Brett Morgan. Thank you.